You may be seated. As I said last week, um, I'm really grateful to be here, to be pastoring among you, to be in this church, and to be preaching for you for six weeks. And I said, you know, it's going to take uh, some weeks, some times for us to get tuned to one another. But I also said that I'm not scared of a little feedback and talk back. So uh, feel free uh, to speak back to me, to amen or whatever. You know, the Lord can, the Lord can handle our, uh, our outcry. Let me pray for us as we go to the scriptures, as we go to the word of life. Jesus, we say with Peter, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have words of life. And we also say with Peter and Isaiah that all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. And what we take from that, Lord, is that your word does not change. Your word will not return void. You do not lie. You do not deceive. You will accomplish what you have set out to do. And so we praise you this morning. When we think about the Lord, how he has saved us, how he raised us, makes us want to shout hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Spirit work with the word this morning. Transform our hearts. Help us not to leave in the same manner in which we came. Change us and transform us in your name. Amen. On April 20th, 2010, 40 miles off the southern coast of Louisiana, they only have one coast, it's in the south. Anyway, in the Gulf of Mexico, there was an oil rig called the Deepwater Horizon. You remember that? And it was positioned and attempting to drill into a well deep underground, so deep around eight, over 18,000 feet below sea level and in 5,000 feet of water. And it had been trying to dig this well and drill into it for quite some time, and it was behind schedule, you know, and it was almost 45, 50 days behind schedule. BP was losing millions of dollars. All this stuff was on the line. And uh, so, so decisions were made on that day, on April 20th, unwise, risky decisions, because they, they weren't quite sure of the stability of the well deep underground, and you've got to know that thing's stable before you start drilling. But, you know, impatience, foolishness, they began drilling anyway. And when they did, the well did not hold. I don't know if you remember the story, but highly pressurized, toxic, flammable methane gas shot up right through the pipe, and it caused this deadly explosion on the rig. It, it had so much pressure. The rupture had caused so much pressure that it began to tear the rig apart. And then, of course, a spark caught it in the engine room, and the whole thing was engulfed in flames, and immediately 11 people lost their lives. And it created this harrowing situation where a lot of people had to escape, and there are some crazy stories that came out of that. And, a, and a, that deep rupture, deep underground, had caused that chain reaction and that explosion. But even worse, I don't know if you remember what happened after that, it began, this well, now that it had ruptured, began spewing oil into the ocean, into the environment, into the ecosystem at a rate that was unprecedented. In fact, probably the worst environmental disaster, one of the worst ever. It started pouring it so fast that over 87 days, it spewed an estimated 210 million gallons of oil into the ecosystem. So this deep rupture, deep underground, had polluted everything and every creature. But not only that, it polluted the whole entire ecosystem. Chains of biological relationships within the creation 
And so many of the coastal states today are still dealing with that and the negative health effects that that has caused. And when it happened, a massive cleanup operation had to be undertaken by BP because under United States law, the company that owned uh, the oil rig, when it had the spill, was responsible for the cleanup because someone has to pay for the mess that gets made. That is what the law required. <laughs> and because someone had to be, pay for a mess, that was BP. And so BP, uh, they, have, they tried to do all sorts of cleanup operations. They flew giant airplanes over the oil spill and they dropped this other chemical that was called corrects it <laughs> over the oil. And that, oil's jo that, that chemical's job was to uh, kind of disperse the oil and make it sink to the bottom of the ocean. Well, of course, as you can imagine, uh, dropping another chemical after another chemical in the ocean has negative effects too. And what BP began to realize is that any cleanup effort that they could mount what paled in comparison to the extent of the mess. And, some of, and, and BP has paid out a total of $46 billion to repair the mess they've made in people's lives, health, environmental costs. And some of us will remember pictures from that oil spill. Do you remember them? It was like turtles and pelicans, these beautiful animals that were coated with this brown sludge of oil. And this serves for us today as an image, an appropriate one, an illustration for how the Christian faith understands just what is wrong with the world, just what is wrong with each of us. You see, ecosystems and the creatures therein become polluted when the natural elements get blended with foreign elements. So in this case, the natural elements are blended with oil. And so then the natural elements, they can't flourish, they can't nourish, they can't delight, they can't function how they were supposed to function. And so this is what we say about the world that God has made, that God made a world beautiful. God made a world with shalom. That's that old biblical word that not only we usually translate it as peace, but it really means wholeness. And it means right relationships between humanity and God and between humanity and humanity, cultures, nations, tribes in unity and between all of that and the creation itself. And so what the Christian faith says is that all of that was ruptured, a deep rupture, so deep that you can't even seem to reach it. So when the entrance of sin and evil into the world, not only every creature becomes polluted, but the whole ecosystem becomes polluted. Whole chains of relationships, chains of cultures and groups and people. And so we need a massive cleanup operation. Amen. Amen. We need to be cleansed. Not only us and our hearts, of course that needs to happen, but the whole environment needs to be cleansed. This is a series about worship, and it's about witness. It's about what we do in here in the sanctuary, the shape of Christian worship, and we believe that worship forms us to be a certain kind of people. And the practices that we do as a community together that ripple out into each of our lives, they form us as people, but they form us as a community to have a certain kind of witness before the watching world. And so we say the, the, that worship and witness is about five C's, the five holy C's, which I didn't come up with, which aren't divinely inspired, but nevertheless helpful. Called, cleansed, consecrated, communing, and commissioned. And we find ourselves today on the second C, which is cleansed, meaning the confession, the assurance, and the passing of the peace. And real quickly, just because I know not everyone was here last week, 
And the, the sermon recording, unfortunately, uh, didn't make it up there because I guess God wanted the sermon to stay in the room last week, but that's okay. What I was talking about is that when, when we start talking about Holy Sees, Worship, and Witness from the book of Revelation, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the book of Revelation. And if you don't know anything about uh, Christians and Christians in America, the book of Revelation is a difficult book. It causes a lot of division. And it's a weird, strange book to a lot of people. And so either it's been ignored as kind of strange, we don't touch it, we take a few verses from it that we like, or it's been hyper-obsessed with by people on TV and the radio who are looking to decode every single verse to fit their own geopolitical theories about when Jesus is going to come back and how he's going to come back, regardless of Jesus himself saying, I don't even know, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, still, I don't know, human foolishness, but that's okay. But more importantly... I feel that the church has been robbed of the book of Revelation, which is written to certain Christians living at the end of the first century, but it's also written for us, and it calls us to a life of hope and faithfulness, either in the midst of suffering and oppression or the temptation to compromise our faith, and to a life of worship and witness to God and to the Lamb in defiance of every idol or empire that might surround us. So quickly, if you remember my three things about Revelation from last week, Revelation is a letter written by John to Christians living at what we call today Turkey, what was then called uh, Asia Minor. So however we interpret Revelation, it needs to make sense to those who received the letter. It's a letter, not written to us, but written, given for us. Revelation is an apocalypse, meaning uh, a, a human is, has been visited by an angelic being like in Daniel and Ezekiel, and the veil between the natural and the supernatural is lifted and torn. And so the, the seer is given a vision of how things look from God's perspective. It's highly imaginative. It's not to be read with a microscope. It's to be read with imagination, numbers, colors, symbols. Finally, Revelation is a prophecy. That doesn't only mean telling the future. It means speaking God's word to God's people at a time that God appoints. And we said prophecy cuts both ways. To those who are being faithful, it comforts. And to those who are being unfaithful, it confronts. It does both things. And we said Revelation is a fitting end to the scripture because two-thirds of it are Old Testament uh, citation and illusion, and it ends with a garden and a city and a tree of life and a God walking among his people and wiping every tear from their eyes. That is the book. So that's my little brief recap of Revelation as we go into it today and we come to the second C today, which is cleansed. I'm going to give you three C words today to follow along in our passage. They do correlate with the confession, the assurance, and the passing of the peace, but they're called confession cleansing, and community. Confession, cleansing, and community. So first, the confession. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. See, last week in Revelation 4, if you remember the scene, we were introduced to the Holy, Holy, Holy One who was seated on the throne, the Creator of all things, the one who was worthy of all worship. That is the throne that John's talking about as the scene continues. And he says, and then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And if you know about biblical literature and ancient Near Eastern literature, you know that the right hand is the hand of power. It symbolizes the hand of sovereignty, of strength, of deliverance. And in the right hand of this one, he is holding a scroll written with seven seals. 
Now, this image is maybe a little bit foreign to us, uh, but I think, I think we can uh, grasp it together. See, in the ancient world, when important documents were written, whether that be letters or legal documents, they would write it on the scrolls of parchments, and they, and they would roll it up. And then what would happen is they would pour, where the, where the two pieces of paper met, they would pour hot wax upon that spot. And then the sender would stamp his custom or her custom seal into the document to seal it up. Now, we still have seals today. We just look silly because we're sitting there looking, looking a piece of paper and then shutting uh, the envelope to keep it sealed until the one who needs to open it can open it. See what I'm saying? And so what we're supposed to take away from this image is that this scroll It is sealed with seven seals, and seven is a number of fullness, meaning this thing is really locked up. This is a highly classified document. You need a certain kind of clearance to access this document. That's what the text is trying to say. And so John sees this mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who's got the security clearance? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one. No one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so silence, silence in heaven. You could hear a pin drop. But but this whole time in Revelation 4 and 5, this has been a loud and cataclysmic scene of worship and praise and bowing down and casting crowns. And, you know, worship in the Bible is loud. Okay, so if worship ever feels loud to you in here, that's okay, because it's loud in the Bible. Trumpets and and cymbals, these are not soft instruments. Uh, And so this shouting scene becomes a scene of silence. And can you enter into the drama of that? Because this chapter, and because life is dramatic. Maybe if you knew what the scroll contained and why it needed to be opened, maybe that would help you enter into the drama of it. Well, if you let the book of Revelation answer that question for you. The rest of the book, after the opening of the scroll, tells the story of what is the scroll. It's ultimately, it goes like a symbolic montage and cycles of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. But what it is basically saying is God's grand plan to judge and to redeem the world that God has made. How will God bring about a new creation? How will God restore? How Will he fix things and clean up the mess? That is what the scroll is ultimately trying to answer. And I think it has meaning, of course, for those in that day who lived under Roman power. But as I still look around, I see a world in desperate need of restoration. The scroll is God's remaking, recreating power in the world. But no one in heaven or on earth was found. In Eric Mason's words, uh, heaven got nervous. So John reaches the end of himself, and he begins to cry. No, he weeps. The Greek verb right there is emphatic. He begins to weep loudly. He becomes overwhelmed in a flood of grief, like out of control, like a flood of grief, grief kind of weeping. And I don't think John is just weeping for himself. For his own life, now sitting in exile, a prisoner of Rome, wondering what God is going to do. I think John is weeping over the state of everything. Because to bring our imagery back, the pollution of sin is not just personal. 
It's environmental. It doesn't just affect each creature here or there. It affects the whole ecosystem. When Jesus teaches us to pray about sin, he teaches us to pray what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which means that we recognize that sin is not only perpetuated by us, it is perpetuated against us. Abuse, cruelty, oppression, betrayal, cheating. And not only this, the pollution of sin stretches out over time. It has environmental and generational effects. So when we talk about many topics of of sin, we have to think of it in this deep kind of way. This deep polluting and mutating kind of way. One of the sins that, of course, has polluted our environment is the hatred and, and sin of racism. And so when we think about racism in America, we don't just think about one individual towards another being full of cruelty or hate or prejudice against another person of a different skin hue. Racism runs much deeper and longer than that. It's a pollutant that stretches out in the whole environment. So just the other night, 10 of us from Mosaic, we advertised in our bulletin, we got to go to a a lecture and a workshop on on gentrification in Washington, D.C., Uh, It was taught by Dr. George Derek Musgrove of University of Maryland, Baltimore College. And Dr. Musgrove gave a lecture about the four waves of gentrification in Washington, D.C.'s history and how that works out. And I'm sure some of you will know what gentrification means, which is when a a wealthier population with more money moves back into an area of the city that has a population with less money and often less opportunity or, in the past, legal rights to get to own property. And so what happens is, is poor people begin to get displaced, removed from their homes where they have built lives. That's the tragedy of it, of course. But Dr. Musgrove was talking about the fact that you you can't, whether in D.C. or America, think about gentrification and poor people being displaced without it affecting people of color disproportionately. Because in America, a white family has eight times the amount of net worth than a family of color. In D.C., the difference is 82 times the amount of wealth. And that gap, ultimately, we can, we can say a lot of things about that gap, but we can ultimately say that it is linked to the sin of racism. That is what has created the gap. Not only uh, its roots in slavery and its failures to do reparative justice after the institution of slavery, but of course the generations after generations after policy decision after policy decision to discriminate, to withhold legal rights and economic opportunities based on race. And so when we begin to think about sin, we don't need to have a a shallow doctrine of sin. We have to tell the truth about the whole environment, generation after generation. And we have to begin to say with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And we have to say with Daniel, Both we and our fathers have sinned, and we have done what is evil in your sight. So so you have to think about not just the state of your own heart and your own sin, or not just what's been done to you, but what has been done and what is being done. And perhaps you get deeper into why John would weep, that nothing could be done about this. This is why heaven gets nervous, and this is why despair sets in, because who is going to fix the massive problem? And we come to see that the cleanup efforts pale in comparison to the scale of the mess being made. And I think this scene to me of John weeping has become so deep as I have lived life because I've seen that the scene really belongs to all of us. The scene of reaching the end of ourselves 
realizing the condition of not only our own hearts, but the condition of everything. And getting to that place of confessing and telling the truth is one of the hardest but most important things that we can do. We can't know love and grace outside of that place. Why is it so hard to tell the truth about sin and evil, though? I think this sermon was harder than last week's sermon, if I can be honest. Because, um, not harder, just the text wasn't harder. But I think the subject of sin is a little bit harder. Because today, I think the subject of sin is quite out of style. All right? And I don't mean by that that people have uh, stopped sinning. (laughs) It's not out of style in that way. But, I, but I, what I mean is the topic of absolute moral judgments, ethical or unethical, just or unjust, selfish or not selfish. It seems to be very out of style and very contentious in our times. And I don't know. I don't know if we're utterly unique. I think it's always been contentious because Jesus's first words were repent for the kingdom of God is at, uh, at hand. And, and well, they killed Jesus. But I think today it's quite remarkable just how individualistic and relativistic are the times that we live in and the air that we breathe. And these realities, in my experience, seem to describe all kinds of people, all kinds of people from every ethnic or cultural or social or economic background, meaning that today often people think of themselves as isolated individuals with their own passions and convictions about what the world is, how the world works, how should it work, and they often judge Uh, and answer those questions by how it affects them or how it affects someone they know. And then they say, well, everyone is like this, so ultimately it's kind of all relative according to each person's convictions and how each person feels. And many today uh, reason themselves to be a mere biological reality, floating along the chain of, uh, of life here, trying as best they can to lead selfless and compassionate and tolerant lives, trying not to step on anyone's toes. But not everyone is doing that. Many people are just trying to get all the pleasure and treasure they can out of life, no matter the human toll. And this message of individualism and relativism, I think it has often become to us like a hypnotic and a tranquilizing narcotic aroma, and we have been drugged and fooled into seeing the world in this way too. And I include myself in that. So the idea of sin and a holy God and, and a need for, for forgiveness and reconciliation with God and the corruption of sin in societies and generations and the need for a Savior, it becomes a cute, a quaint, and antiquated idea. And now we can also say this. Very few people actually buy into this idea because no one can live in a world without no moral absolutes. Everyone knows that there's something wrong and that there needs to be boundary lines, but we are often, as a people, living in between these two states and doing so quite inconsistently. But this is not what the Christian faith teaches. The Christian faith teaches that, no, no, something is wrong. (laughs) Something is wrong. We have a deep rupture and we have become polluted and distorted and deadly and corrupted, corrupted and twisted by sin. So we have companies that spend all day calling elderly people with uh, fading memories and dementia to get them to give over their financial information so that they can siphon their life savings from their bank accounts. And we have men who work at companies out of this hashtag MeToo movement who use their power and position to exploit women physically and sexually 
to get them to do whatever they want. We have fathers who abuse their own daughters. We have cheating. We have betrayal. We have infidelity. And we have to tell the truth about this. Some people have said the Christian doctrine of sin is the easiest of all the Christian doctrines to actually prove. Just go read your newspaper. But this still is hard, isn't it? If we're honest, because we have come up with different techniques to keep us from telling the truth. I'm going to call these confession deflection techniques. Uh, We have minimized sin. And so we say things like, well, boys will be boys. Or we say, it's just silly, really. It's not wrong. Or that's just locker room talk. Or I'm not being abusive. You have thin skin. Or we say, oh, you know, that was back then and, and this is now. Don't bring up the past. It's irrelevant. We, we minimize the pain and shame of sin by moving on and letting bygones be bygones. And we say people in the United States 100 years ago or 50 years ago, they were merely a product of their times, a victim to circumstance. Everyone has blind spots, you know. By minimizing the wrong, we have failed to tell the truth from God's perspective. We have deflected when people talk to us. We have used, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this term, but we have used whataboutisms. Well, what about? Mm, you know what I'm talking about? In these moments of deflection, we take the attention off of ourselves or off of our group, and we say, well, what about that? By deflecting our sin, we fail to tell the truth. Instead of telling the truth about how we blew up in anger in someone, we just say, well, if they would have been perfect, we wouldn't have had to get angry. Or instead of telling the truth that we've been selfish or greedy with my mo- our money, we look at people who are irresponsible with theirs, and so we don't have to focus on ourselves. Instead of telling the truth about our pride, we endlessly win arguments and put people down to make them feel dumb. You know what else we do to have to keep from telling the truth? We, we numb ourselves. We use all sorts of things, substances, media, relationships. People sit in front of a screen for hours and hours a day to keep them from having to come into contact with reality, with the way the world works. What lies under all of this from the scripture's perspective is that we are hiding from the truth. When our first parents sinned, you know what the first thing is they did together? They hid because they realized they were naked. And we're ashamed. This is the story that the Bible tells. That when we are confronted with the evil of our own hearts. And the evil that's been done. And the evil of the world. We hide from one another. We hide from something deep inside of us. That says that my life is not the way it's supposed to be. Something about the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But we have to come to the place of realizing. That our cleanup efforts pale in comparison to the mess. That we have made. We have to tell the truth about the bad news before we can receive the good news. Because if you don't receive the bad, if you don't believe in the bad news, the good news is not good news at all. Or as Eugene Peterson says, you have to receive, you have to hear the word that rips the roof off your house before you receive the sheltering word of the gospel. But a word does come. A word does come. It breaks into our passage When one of the elders says to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Lion of the tribe of Judah is from Genesis 49 and root of David from Isaiah 11. These are long ago foretold prophecies about the one who would come to destroy sin and death itself. And these images are militaristic lion. 
And they are nationalistic, root of David that has to do with the people of Israel. And so we are expected, when we uh, intro- are introduced to this character, we are expected now to see someone who is so mighty and powerful. We are expecting to see biceps and swords and armies and nukes and violence and the image of sovereignty and strength. But that's not what we see in this passage. And in this turn, we experience what is the center of the mystery that is the Christian faith and what one commentator has called one of the most mind-numbing, wrenching rebirths of images in all of literature. And John says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And he went He went, the lamb did. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And the image that is conveyed to us, the vision that John has, is not what any of us would expect. It is not the vision of a ferocious lion. It is the vision of what seems like a weak lamb. A lamb is the weakest of all kinds of sheep because it's a baby sheep. And a slaughtered lamb is even weaker. See, God doesn't work like the U.S. government, you know, because under U.S. law, see, BP was responsible for cleaning up the mess that they had made because they were the responsible party who was responsible for the oil spill. And they have had to pay up, all right, $45 billion, as I said. But this is not the way that God works. When God sees that his world has become polluted because of a massive rupture and because of a sinful decision made by his creatures, he has jurisdiction over that world. He gets to decide who is responsible for cleaning up the mess. But the gospel is this. The gospel is this. How does the Lord make a way? How does the the Lord clean up the mess that is made? By sending fire, by condemning, by making us pay, by using our shame against us? No. And this is the central mystery of the faith. The gospel is this. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, some people would venture to die for a good man, maybe. but, But for a bad man, no one would venture to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And and therefore, since we have been justified by his blood, much more so we be saved by him from the, the wrath to come. Jesus has confronted the evil and the truth of everything as a lamb who was slain, as one who absorbs the punishment, one who absorbs the pain in his own body. And of course, this imagery of the lamb is steeped in biblical literature. You remember the Passover lamb from Exodus 12 who saves the people of Israel from the justice of God. And you remember the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah 53, who was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. This is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And is this this lamb weak and pathetic? No. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are an imagery of, of power, of wisdom, of perception. Because to love your enemies takes the most power in our world. That is what the Lamb teaches us. He's got the cleansing, justifying power. He alone is worthy to save the world, and He has done it. This is the cleansing word that we receive. 
So where do we go from there? What, is it, what difference does it make in our life? We can tell the truth. We can confess because it is not going to be the end of us. In Christian worship and in Christian life, we are called to shut off our self-justification and to embrace the Lamb's justification. When I, I am free to stop deflecting, to stop minimizing, or to stop numbing my sin because I know I don't have to atone for my sin. I don't have to ultimately clean up the mess that I've made. I ultimately have to rely upon the one who has absorbed the mess of this world. And that is what gives me the freedom to live in love and in grace. And not only I tell the truth. We tell the truth. We can tell the truth as whole groups of people, as the church, as generations, as generations that stretch back into time. We can name our sin without being crushed by it. And we can embrace repentance as a way of life. Because the rhythm of confession, what we see here is that repentance is not only these big dramatic moments in our lives where we we turn from our sin and turn to the Lord. Repentance is a way of life. It is learning how to come with your brothers and sisters every week and say, God, we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed and to receive the peace of Christ. But it's also in your own life to learn how to say to people, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I love you. What can I do to make things better? What can I do to help you heal? That is the lifestyle of repentance that knowing the Lamb brings you. And as our scene keeps going, though, we recognize that this mess-absorbing, cleansing power of the Lamb, what has it done? It has created something new, a new community, a new creation. And this new community, the elders and the angels and all that is in heaven, what do they say? They sing a new song. That's a scriptural word to sing a song new in response to something new that God has done. And they say, worthy are you, O lamb who was slain. You are worthy to open its seals. You are the one who can open this document. You are the one who can begin to make all things new. Because by your blood, you ransomed a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign over the earth. Again, our passage here is building on biblical imagery. We've already had the root of David, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. These are our images that stretch back into the people of God in the Old Testament. And now here we see a kingdom and a priest. This is the same language that was described Israel, meaning Israel was supposed to live as those who had received the deliverance and the grace of God. And they were supposed to live under his kingship, his rulership, and they were supposed to be priests to God. Well, what does that mean? What do priests do? They serve in the name of God. They bless and they mediate God's blessings out into the world. That is what Israel was supposed to do. But now in, in the Lamb, in the Messiah, not one nation is chosen to bless all the nations. All the nations are made into a people, a, a kingdom and priests to God. And so when we see this nations and tribes and tongues, what our mind is supposed to think is, well, it's very hard to get shalom happening between nations and tribes and language and people. That's the way of the world. But in the way of redemption, God has begun to repair the great rupture that happened at the fall. And what the church is supposed to be is a foretaste of the unity that is to come. And that is how we begin to bestow the blessings of God upon the watching world to say that God is doing something new among us. God has forgiven us, but God is also grafting us into a beloved community. 
a new creation, a new people. That is the witness that we are supposed to display out into the world. And we're going to talk about that more in the next two weeks. Um, But I, I wanted to mention that now. And all of that, all of those people, all of uh, the creation, all of the angels, they begin to sing the song to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And what is revealed within that is that somehow in the way God works and the way God is, the one who sat on the throne in Revelation 4 and the lamb who sits at his right hand, they are both both equally worthy of worship and glory and honor and power and wealth and wisdom. This is the Trinity. This is the Trinity that we have come to worship and who God reveals himself to be. Somehow we can't remove now from the identity of God that somehow God is also a lamb who has absorbed our pain. So the one on the throne is not distant from the pain of this world, the shame of this world. He has gotten off the throne and become a lamb who was slain. How does this affect our life together? We no longer see things as my sin and your sin as detached from one another. We, we realize that whatever happens in our lives, we live as a community. We, we no longer buy into the, the particularized view of my sin and, and your sin. My sin affects you because I live in community with you. We confess and repent together every week because we don't live apart from one another. We live together. And that's why the book of James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That is where healing comes from, telling the truth together and receiving grace together. And that also means that as we are a people who confess together, we mess up together. And we need to confess together and hear together the word of grace and assurance. Because we are not only, we not only confess together. Every week, someone ministering in the Lord, and today it was Melissa, stands up and pronounces a word of love over the congregation a word of assurance, the peace of Christ. We need to have a voice outside of ourselves every week that says to our hearts, our hearts that are often either self-justifying ourselves or condemning ourselves, telling ourselves we're not worthy of the love of God because of how we've messed up. We need a voice that comes in over us and says, no, you have been made worthy in the blood of the Lamb. And then what happens to symbolize that new community, we pass the peace among each other to symbolize we have been brought into a new kind of ecosystem, a new environment that is being made new. Love, grace, restoration. That is the confession and the cleansing and the community that flows from the person of God. How does this affect our witness in the world as I close? We are to have a humble witness always those who are always confessing and receiving grace. People in our cultural moment, especially today, need to see a people who offer themselves vulnerably and truly, who tell what's really going on, who don't minimize, who don't deflect, who don't numb ourselves, but we say, yes, we are weak, but the Lord is strong. We fail, but the Lord always succeeds. We are sinners in need of grace, yes. And we don't, need to, we don't also just need to be truthful about how we've sinned. We need to tell the truth about the sin of the world and to not have to minimize it, even if it conflicts with our political ideology or a party that we are a member of. We say, no, this is not good. This is a rupture of how things are supposed to be, and so we tell the truth. We are also supposed to be people of the Lamb. 
See, many of people have wanted Revelation 4 without Revelation 5. They've wanted to ride the moral high horse to come in upon others in society and pronounce moral judgments about what God thinks is right and what's wrong. But they have not often wanted to take the posture, we have not often wanted to take the posture of one who loves self-sacrificially, who absorbs the pain. And so to be people of the Lamb means that we can move out into the whole vast mess that is still uh, polluting our world. And we can go as those who don't have to atone for the mess. We don't ultimately have to clean the mess up. But we know the one who has brought cleansing. That is what it means to be, to be people of the Lamb. And finally, to be those who receive and pass the peace. To be peacemakers in our world. Knowing our identity that flows from people of the Lamb. This is the salvation that God has brought among us. And so to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb and to the spirit, be blessing and glory and might and power and glory forever. Amen.